Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Since motion pictures began with the work of the Lumiere brothers being publicly projected on December 28, 1896, until today, cinema has been in a constant state of evolution. Innovators have constantly added to the art form from telling a narrative story to evolving a three-act structure to completely altering the tools of cinema. The French magician Georges Méliès created cinematic special effects with his imaginative shorts like 1902's The Trip to the Moon. Color film became mainstream in the 1930s, at first used only on the most expensive studio productions, but it wasn't long before it became the norm. Synchronous sound changed everything with 1927's The Jazz Singer. Willis O'Brien pioneered the use of stop-motion animation with The Lost World in 1925 and in 1933's King Kong, further refined by his protege Ray Harryhausen and morphing into go-motion on the Star Wars films by Phil Tippett and Dennis Muren. Speaking of Star Wars, the evolution of visual effects took a turn at warp speed with blue screen work perfected by Richard Edlund and his group on that film. Digital cinematography again transformed an art form that thrives on change, making it possible to adjust everything in a movie from its color palette to completely created digital imagery. The first movie to be digitally recalibrated to create dynamic colors for a digital intermediate was the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And computer-created imagery exploded with The Last Starfighter and Terminator 2. The point is, things are always changing. But it's all in the service of telling a story. I always get excited when the evolving tools of cinema create something fresh and new to tell the tale. The most excited I've been in a movie theater in a long time was seeing everything everywhere all at once, which gave me the thrill of seeing something truly new, using film techniques in fresh ways and still delivering a compelling, even emotional story. It was written and directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, collectively known as Daniels, and they are here with us to talk about their breakthrough film and their gargantuan efforts to bring it to the screen after this. To celebrate the centennial of Sir Christopher Lee, Severin Films is releasing a box set of the most unexpected, underrated, and underseen films of the iconic actor's European career. The Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee Volume 2 Six Blu-ray Set. Immediately following Horror of Dracula, Lee reprised the role in the quirky 1959 Italian comedy Uncle Was a Vampire. Lee speaks fluent German opposite Klaus Kinski for the insane 1962 creamy Secret of the Red Orchid. In the 1974 UK psycho-thriller Dark Places, Lee toplines a cast that includes Joan Collins, Herbert Lom, and Jane Birkin. Lee's final performance as the Count in the 1976 French comedy Dracula and Son can at last be seen in its superior director's cut, while the ultra-rare 1988 Dutch drama Murder Story brings Lee into the sex shops of Amsterdam. 
Each film has been remastered from original negative materials with over 15 total hours of trailers, commentaries, alternate cuts, vintage interviews, and new featurettes, plus the Dracula and Son soundtrack and an all-new book by Lee biographer Jonathan Rigby, A Career in Six Snapshots. The Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee, Volume 2, available at www.severinfilms.com. That's www.severin-films.com. Hi, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great to meet you. And I, I, you can tell that I'm very enthusiastic about you. Oh, my God. I have to say, while listening to you read that introduction, I was um, I was getting chills just because, uh, you, you know, you were breaking down the history of our entire art form in our entire industry. And for a second, I forgot that you were talking about our movie, you know, <laughs> and, and then and then you brought it back in. And I, and I don't know. It, that was the most, um, yeah, yeah, the most complimentary. Uh, it's humbling to, to be yeah. like, oh, we're a part of that yeah. uh, history. Not like we're going to be like on the timeline in the textbook, but just. Well, to, like... you may well be. I mean, oh, okay. the fact is this, this really is a unique film and it really uses storytelling, cinematic storytelling in a very unique and polished way that that is surprising and thrilling. And like I said, it leads into a really emotional storyline with these characters that, that have an effect on the audience that equals the effect that they themselves have. Mm. Wow, thank, thank you. you, thank you. I'm so glad you, you received all of that from our film. That's really mm. exciting to hear. Well, it, it's thrilling to see something new and fresh like this. And uh, But you guys got together, what, at Emerson College in Boston? Was that the genesis of this whole thing? Yeah, we, uh, we met there um, at that school that cost too much. And um, <laughs> we didn't really get along um, that much, you know? Like, we, uh, we, had, we, we like to say we had very different learning styles. So like in school, right. he was the kid who participated too much. And I was the kid who participated too little. And, we <laughs> and had, I was like, oh, yeah. he's going to go into debt for nothing. You know, like, I was, he's not really engaging in class. And I was like, look at these idiots engaging in class. I'm working on more important things. <laughs> so yeah, was, we, <laughs> we had different versions of, of being assholes, but um, it was very, it, was, it became very clear as we started to share our work in class that, um, we both had very interesting weird things to say and we both were actually pretty proficient at it you know because like you know whenever you're in a, a film class there are a handful of people who sort of really wow you in a class and um you know we saw each other's work and we we're like oh wow okay this this person is a is is i underestimated this person yeah right so individually you had your visions but collectively it was doubly powerful uh, it turns so. out, yeah, yeah. We, we we did not plan for that to happen. It's one of the weird ways that uh, the alchemy of our of our you know of our brains um, kind of combined in that way. We've yeah. been reflecting on like uh, uh, the films that influenced us a lot while talking about this movie, uh, and we keep kind of like stopping ourselves and being like, "But the internet influenced us a lot too." You know, yeah. like we're a younger generation of filmmakers who like were very influenced by YouTube and like Vimeo and by like blogs with, with interesting, strange short films. And, and that was our world for years. Just Would making... you say even more so than the movies that preceded? I don't know if more, but I do think that that's almost equal, but like that's equal unique, footing, yeah. you know, to our generation that like, yeah. 
yeah. we we grew up on the internet and it affected our brains, maybe not for the better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly leads to a shorter attention span, but you know, Swiss Army Man, which I was on a jury at one of the uh, film festivals that might have been Sitches or somewhere that awarded that film as oh, best picture. Yeah. Oh, cool. And, Thank and you. it is a totally different feel. You know, it is much more of a passive experience. Mm. Um, and then suddenly short attention span theater in everything, everywhere, all at once. I mean, it's two hours and a quarter long. It's not a short movie, but it moves at such a pace that you feel like you're you're burning through a new world. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we react to the world around us and we could tell something was happening to independent film in, in a way that like was scaring us. Like a lot of the most personal, important stories um, were getting pushed out of the theatrical experience because people weren't going to the theaters to um, to watch these movies because people were sitting at home watching these movies um, streaming on on a streaming service while also playing video games or or scrolling through their you know their Instagram feed or whatever. Um, I, I I've actually even heard some people claim that that is part of the strategy for some um, streaming services is to create passive. Um, media for us to be watching so that we can basically sit there for hours and hours at a time without um, exhausting our brains like we are able to look at our phones while watching this movie so that they have their numbers up you know their their data can go up so they can talk to their investors about that and so this film is, is us fighting against all these different um, incentives that have um, kind of um, sprung up because of uh, the streaming age and us trying to in the blockbuster age in the blockbuster yeah this this this, this yeah post superhero ip age that we're in that is is trying to fight all of that um by trying basically imitating it taking from it learning from it and then also injecting uh, this very uncompromised personal risky uh narrative that we wanted to um that we want uh, people to see and so it, it's a weird um science experiment almost to see like can we make something just as personal and beautiful and and necessary as as some of our favorite films, but then arm it with the right genetic makeup so that it can survive in this current climate. Um, so it, yeah, it can. And yet, I dare anyone to do their emails and uh, and uh, watch uh, their YouTube videos while they're watching this movie. Exactly. <laughs> this is an all attention paid to this. But let, let's go back. You you both seem to have come from very different backgrounds. Was there art in? Are either of your parents artists? What what was life like for the young Daniels? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, um, my dad was uh he immigrated here when he was five or six he grew up in new york chinatown um and he grew up in a laundromat that's that that you know that part of the movie is very much from his um his side of the family wow. and he was not artistic or he still isn't artistic like he's very much a analytical um science math brain he's a computer science major he he's always wow. worked in telecommunications and then my mother also was computer science major they met in grad school she came here from taiwan and she uh she did a little bit of everything. She was a librarian at one point. She was a, a teacher at a professor. Um, she was a professor at a college for a little moment. She started a beauty salon. Um, she's running um, Chinese restaurants now. And so my, my mom wow. kind of just kind of went a little bit everywhere. And um, 
we had we weren't a very creative family um, but my mom I think always wished she could have been a singer or wished she could have been a dancer and so I, I do think that she tried to instill some of the stuff in me even before I felt like I wanted it or knew I was good at it she she could see it in me um, and and really try to foster that so that's mm. that that's yeah that's where it came from for me yeah and I grew up in uh, Alabama and uh, my parents and my grandparents are all from Alabama. Um, and, uh, but, but I do have a bunch of like artsy relatives and, and my mom uh, also worked in telecommunications, but did a, she was like an art major in undergrad and like really encouraged my interest in like theater. I did like a ton of theater as a kid. Um, and my aunt is like a harpsichord wow. expert um, who like, <laughs> Uh, so she's like, you know, a musician and so is her husband. And, uh, so I did have these kind of like role models that like encouraged the arts, you know, but, um, never dreamed that like the film industry was an accessible thing, you know, um, and kind of stumbled towards that. And, and a huge part of that is thanks to, um, the small town film festival, uh, like sidewalk film festival in Birmingham. Um, and that like, when I first went there, it blew my mind, the kind of bizarre movies they were showing. And, and, and then when they showed one of my movies and I got to show it to an audience, I was like hooked. I was like, that yeah. is crazy. It was literally a, a Kung Fu movie was the first movie I made that played at the film festival. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was like a, you know, ninth grade boy who was super into Jackie Chan, Michelle Yo, you know, Stephen <laughs> Chow movies. And uh, so I made one. Yeah. <laughs> and you made one amazingly. Now, I'm always curious how writing directing teams work. Is one of you more left brain, one more right brain? Um, to look at you, uh, Daniel Kwan, you look more the artistic type mm, and ah. daniel schweiger you look more buttoned up and technological right <laughs> that's oh. so funny i'm wearing my button-up shirt <laughs> yeah today. this is the one yeah. day that you could say uh -huh. that about him okay yeah, he, well we're meeting for the first he's time he's wearing like it looks like a grateful dead tie-dye shirt it's like, yeah. he's like he's like that guy usually i look like a stoner but i don't yeah. really like marijuana yeah. uh but yeah. uh, marijuana but marijuana the weed that i uh <laughs> but i look like i do normally i, I feel like i feel like our 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 division of labor isn't quite as clean as something like that. I, I think we, one way we like to say is that we uh, take turns stressing out about different things, you know, because <laughs> I think, you know, as a filmmaker, like it's just constant stress. There's always something new to be worried about and to prioritize and to, to, you know, to problem solve. And we take turns shouldering that stress, depending on who is more passionate about the thing that we're talking about. And so oftentimes he's really passionate about the casting process. You know, he came from theater and he, he was an actor. And so that's something that he loves to take care of. And I let him stress out about that. <laughs> I came from animation and editing and very much am like a computer nerd. So you, you got that part wrong. I, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, they're I'm, reversed. Yeah. I'm a big computer nerd. And so like, I love to worry about the edit and I love worrying about visual effects and I love worrying about the aesthetic and stuff like that. And so I'll, I'll often shoulder more of that, um, that stress. Uh, but again, every project is different and we kind of are just trying to naturally feel how, uh, who, who is the most more stressed out person in the moment and try to give that person the resources that they need. Um, how would you def define our, our I, I always like talking about how like, you know, film, filmmaking, as much as we like to talk about the auteur who 
made the movie uh, is like so collaborative. And uh, this just sets the tone of the rest of the process when we have to work with a hundred other, you know, creative people. Absolutely. And, uh, in some ways, you know, our relationship isn't that different than uh, a director and their favorite screenwriter or their favorite producer relationship might be, especially if that they were so close with that producer that, that the producer sometimes stepped in and took over because the director was freaking out. And if which, they, which happens, which happens know? all the time. Yeah. We, just, we just have this kind of like IMDb makes it look like there's these extremely strict, clear lines of division. Right. And I think because we are a duo, it just, those lines are extra amorphous, you right. know, but it's not that different. And I, and I always love kind of collecting stories about my favorite filmmakers and being like, Oh, like, Peter Jackson always works with his wife. Like yeah. she's a huge part of his process. Like, yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. We were, <laughs> we were talking to an, another directing duo a few years back. And uh, one of the directors that we're talking to like kind of jokingly, but also, um, you know, in a heartfelt way was talking about how directing is kind of an inhumane job. Like you're the boss. Yes. And yes, you get to have the dream job that everyone wishes you could have. But the amount of work that is, you know, you know, expected of one human being um, for a sustained period of time is actually kind of um, just brutal. <laughs> it's brutal, almost unethical. But of course, right. it's again, it's they're so lucky at the same time. So he was like, like a, he was like, that's why all these directors are sad, divorced. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like, the only reason I'm not divorced is because I have my brother, and we we take we share some load, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that's but, really what it is. It's we're sharing the load. That's all. That's usually how we, we put it, but it can be tough, you know, to, yeah. it, and it, it's so important that we have similar tastes yes. and that like some, there's something unintentional about our process that just happens where when we argue it, it gets better and that's right. not guaranteed, you know, like yeah. sometimes you get, you argue with folks and the project gets worse, you know? Right. Uh, but something about what we disagree on usually leads to clarifying forwards movement, yeah. not backwards, you know, movement. Yeah. Well, it's true collaboration where you inspire each other to be better. Yes. And, and as far as the screenwriting process goes, um, I have mostly worked uh, by myself, but there have been times when I've co-written mm -hmm. and I'm just curious as to how that works. Do you, are you in the same room and throwing dialogue back and forth at each other? Or do you say, okay, I'll take the first 30 pages, you take the next. Mm -hmm. How do you break down that work? Yeah, yeah it's a the, mess. It's a mess. So <laughs> make it up as we go along, mm -hmm. mess. Yeah. The, the initial process usually happens together in the same room or, you know, oftentimes we'll be living our lives and ideas will come up and we'll start writing separately and then we'll, we'll start sharing it with each other. And in that process of sharing, we do the, yeah, we, we, we're, we're throwing the football back and forth. The idea gets, gets better every time it gets passed back and forth and we start to outline together in that way. And then there, there comes a point where like, um, we realize like it's not easy for us to sit in the room together and write. Like I, I love to write by myself. I love to be isolated. I think um, you know that where that book, um, Deep Work by uh, Cal Newport. His books on my mm. shelf. Cal Newport um, talks about the importance of just like isolated work, and I really um, resonate with that. Um, Stephen King's I, on writing is really forceful about that first yes. draft being your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah he, totally i love that book um and 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 I, I again i also resonated with a lot of that stuff that he wrote and um so usually what we'll do is we'll, we'll split up 
And um, Shiner is the kind of person who can finish an entire draft in a couple weeks. Um, and I'm the kind of person who, but it sucks, but, but it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I'm the kind of person who will take the same amount of time and write one scene that is like 20 pages too long. And it's so good. <laughs> yeah. It's, but like, <laughs> but I think that, that the fact that we both have these strengths and these deficits, I, I think it's, it's what you want out of a collaboration is to be able to know that even though there are certain things that you cannot do on your own, there's someone else who can pick up the slack. Well, before moving into feature films, you had a great deal of success with music videos, which surely led to you being able to do the feature films. So tell me about that, because so many music videos are merely exercises in effects and and heightening the music with visuals, but you're also using them in a narrative sense. And tell me about your self-education that led you to the confidence of making feature films. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. It was kind of like a self-education, like uh, we would just write things that we wanted to learn um, and then trick a band into paying for it. So our... (laughs) Our film school caught like a uh, week. We made money, not a lot, but we made money. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it was um, it was so valuable for us. I mean, one of the other things I, you know, we didn't realize this was happening. We were just trying to um, see what we could get paid to make, you know. But um, music videos, you know, you can't lean on dialogue. Um, you can't write a script that like requires uh, those tools. And, and so you have to write a visual story and, and, and it, it kind of, we developed a, a style of screenwriting that was very unique, I think, through that process of being like, okay, the script is the, the only dialogue are these lyrics and this sound. Here's the, the score is done. Um, <laughs> let's reverse engineer a story out of that. And we have to figure out how to tell a story with color and light and props. And, and we're not really interested in uh, just pretty visuals. So we were always trying to jam a story in there. And, and so we kind of learned these like, almost like silent film era filmmaking. Well, pure effect. cinema in a way. Yeah. In a way, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like, these are stories that could only be told with a camera. Uh, you, you know, like I always say that screenwriting frustrates me because sometimes you could write a great screenplay and it would make for a terrible movie because you just all you actually wrote was a good book um Hmm. you didn't write something that had to be filmed like like i feel like a good screenplay oftentimes is a is an unpleasant read uh because you're you're because it needs to be filmed It, it hasn't it doesn't work yet uh it's a blueprint it's a blueprint it's not a book um but we started way, you know, in the extreme version of that, where it was like, hmm. like just visuals. That's all you get. Um, and 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 discovered, learned some hard lessons. You know, we made a couple short films that were too confusing. Right. <laughs> uh, but we learned some great lessons too. You know. The other the other important thing we learned was um, from a very early stage because there's two of us, um, we were way less willing to compromise on our ideas because suddenly we had another person to give us the confidence to just stick to our guns. Um, I feel like our first year of doing music videos, we pitched a new idea. We like would create a fully formed treatment like two or three times a week sometimes. Like we were just constantly pitching, constantly pitching. 
and um it was really demoralizing because we got rejected because we're yeah because we got <laughs> yeah we got rejected yeah. every single time basically yeah. we we got rejected for like almost a full year just every single week and we were just pick up jobs on the side editing doing color jobs vfx you were a driver for a moment you know we just try we're just trying to make a, a go at this and like um we probably should have compromised we probably should have stopped a lot of times sending... we knew what the band wanted yeah but we didn't pitch that because we're like that's boring i don't want to make that i want to make what i want to make sure we do yeah we do a bad job and, and so we kept <laughs> doing this because i think people now look at our work and they're like these guys have never heard no you know these guys have get to make it whatever they want and that's not true it's what happened was we just got told no so often that eventually the record labels got to know us for our ideas. All of our unmade ideas, they everyone was talking about our I think ideas. It kind of became like, yeah, inside jokes at the record label were like, did you hear what Daniel and Daniel <laughs> yeah. pitched and to so, my band? It's I can't believe they thought. <laughs> and so rather than coming to the industry, the industry came to us when suddenly bands would be like, I want a weird, funny video. Do you know anyone? And they're like, I know exactly who you should be talking to. And so suddenly, um, after a year of rejections, um, we had an incredible year where we had built up all of this uh, potential energy, all these ideas that had been rejected, all of these commissioners who were fans of ours, but you know, haven't, didn't know where to put us. Suddenly it just unlocked something. And we just, we did like 12 music videos in, in that year, plus two or three commercials and a couple of short films. We just got to make everything that we like wanted to make on our own terms. And suddenly people were like, I know exactly what I'm gonna get when I get, when I go to the Daniels. Um, and that's exactly what you want out of a director, right? Uh, to be a director with a very unique, specific voice that um, people uh, reach out to you specifically for that thing. Like that's 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 yeah. the, the that's the sweet spot. That's where you want to be. It's um, what we all aspire to. Yeah, and um, so that was a really important thing for us to learn before we got into the feature world, where we could have easily just like get drowned in what the industry expects of of us as directors so yeah had you really compromised it may have led you down a more mundane path which might have been a very short path and yeah. we did yeah we did like book a few jobs um that were that turned out real bad yes uh, where we pitched <laughs> where we pitched what they wanted um or it kind of turned into that and like there was like uh this one project uh for maroon five the band uh right and uh and what this big name director that was like signed to the same company as us was like, do, will you guys help me with some ideas? Like, I know you guys are uh, struggling. You're getting everyone saying no to you. Uh, how about you help me? And, um, and we had this Maroon 5 Renaissance, we call it. Uh, and it was, it was a Renaissance for two reasons. Um, one, we came up with all of these batshit, crazy, unproducible <laughs> joke ideas that were mostly making fun of Adam Levine. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and those actually all, we held onto them and actually made a bunch of them in years later, but for other bands. Um, and then we went and shot this thing that was awful and was really demoralizing and really upsetting and kind of misogynistic. And, and, it, and at every turn, it just kept getting pushed in this direction that wasn't something we could like confidently sink our teeth into. And we ended up kind of quitting during the edit being like, I don't think we can help with the edit anymore. And, uh, and we tried to quit the company and be like, sorry, we're not cut out for this. Like, if this is the kind of content y'all make. Uh, and they said, oh, what kind of content do you want to make? And we described it and they're like, all right, we'll help you do that kind of stuff. And oh, as if they didn't know before, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, it, it was a clarifying moment. It was, it was a clarifying yeah. moment to just be like, uh, 
oh, we should ask for what we want. Um, <laughs> but also like, if we can't do the things we believe in, we, we, we're not interested. Yeah, like why, I, I was, I was industry? full on like, yeah. nope, I didn't, I don't care that I made some money this month. I feel like a, I feel like an icky gross person. So I'll, I'll find a different job if this is what it takes. Um, uh, which well, the lack of compromise, so the lack of compromise has been equally profound in your film career doing feature films. I mean, the idea of casting Daniel Radcliffe as a corpse who farts um, <laughs> throughout the length of the, the, your first movie, Swiss Army Man. How did that come to be? How did you set it up and how did you plan it? Yeah, uh, we we were reflecting, we were talking to one of, like some of our friends who were like trying to get their first feature off the ground recently. And uh, I realized I had forgotten, you know, until we had this conversation that we wrote Swiss Army Man uh, with the backup plan that if we could never get it made or couldn't get any actors attached or couldn't raise any money, we could go off into the woods and star in it ourselves for no money. <laughs> right. Doing the Benson uh, and Moorhead. Uh, yeah, it yeah. was like we wrote yeah. something that like di didn't have to have Daniel Radcliffe. It would just be a dream come true if we did get him. Yeah. Uh, and that was like helpful, you know, because so many of our so many times people write beautiful screenplays, but they can't get them produced. And then they write another one and they can't get it produced and they right. write another one. And they can't yeah, I, I think people look at our work and think like, man, these guys are like wildly ambitious and they're, they're probably like, you know, totally, um, you know, not thinking about budget and not thinking about restraint and not thinking about um, just the restrictions of, of filmmaking. And, and that that's actually the opposite. I think we often go into every project thinking about what do we have right here? Who are the people around us? What do we have um, available to us? And in that moment, we're like, there, there's two of us <laughs> and we can go into the woods. We can shoot anywhere in the wild. We can steal all those locations if we needed to. Um, let's write to that and then see how ambitious we can be within that really um, tight, um, those really tight parameters. Because again, that's that's what music videos were. The music videos, oftentimes the briefs would be like, you have one day with the band, you have X amount of money, and you have to come up with an idea by Tuesday because we're shooting Friday. Go make something. Right. And, and so like <laughs> that, that's, so with Swiss Army Man, it was like, as wild as that movie was, it also felt like something that we could just make on our own if we really needed to, because, mm -hmm. um, because we're not really doing this for money. We're not really doing this for like to, to uh, advance our careers. We're just making it because we think it would be very fun to make. Um, and, and nobody think, imagined Swiss Army Man would be number one at the box office. No, of course not. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be. Well, other than you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I, and and then convincing Radcliffe was so easy. Like he, wow. he read it, he read it, and he wanted to do it. And it, it was just that sweet spot of just like I think people take for granted uh, how like acting is taking risks, and like a lot of actors are addicted to taking risks, and and they're going to be attracted to a project if it's out there because especially they're, if they're successful and they have the box office stuff that they can do, and it affords them the ability to go for it on right. something like this. Yeah, and yeah, there's, there's whole think pieces written about that very thing, that that, that generation of young adult uh, A-list actors who have now turned that clout into all these incredible indie films. Like our, our film is a part of that, you know, with yeah. um, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart and, and 
Daniel Radcliffe or whatever. Um, so like, yeah, yeah, we've, we've, we've never really had much trouble convincing actors uh, to do our projects. Like the, the right actors are like, just want to do it. You know, uh, the hard part is navigating um, agencies and agents and right. the nightmarish maelstrom that that becomes, but like right. talking to the, yeah, we've, it's so fun to just meet Michelle Yeoh, be scared and for her to be like, I like the script. Just excited. Let's do you know, this. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think that's one thing that like another lesson to be learned from all this is if you keep sending out a consistent signal, the right people will come to you. You know, if, if people know exactly what they're getting into when they, they sign up for a meeting, then mm-hmm. no, there will be no surprises. You kind of filter out the wrong people immediately. So you're, you're not wasting anyone's time. It's like my friend Billy's dating app advice is like, uh, be like really off-puttingly, unapologetically yourself. And then like, <laughs> and then you'll actually connect with someone who likes you. Yeah. You know, like, and he's like, just, just goof off, make jokes. If they don't get the joke, great they don't get your jokes like it, they're not right not for try, you. Yeah. not try to be somebody who uh you think they're gonna want right don't exactly. just be a nice guy or a nice girl who's just like hello you're nice i'm nice you know it's like well, then <laughs> he's I, I love that advice like no put out a signal what are you what are you who are you yeah Pretty well fun. in attracting the the on-camera talent is that what it took to get the green light for a swiss army man swiss army man a couple things that happened around the same time that made that possible. Um, as we were writing the movie, someone reached out to us and said, hey, the Sundance Institute, the Sundance Screenwriters Lab, they're looking for submissions. Do you want to send your script in? And like, we both kind of laughed because we're like, no way Sundance wants to read our Farting Corpse movie, but we'll send it along <laughs> just because just we think it's funny. You know, the, uh-huh. the, the, the idea of it is funny. Um, but then they saw something in our work and they could tell that we were very earnest, creative people. and. Um, they accepted us into that uh, incredible, um, incredible institution. I, th- I think what Sundance Labs are doing is, is so important. And uh, so we got the we got the stamp of approval from Robert Redford. And then around the same time, we ended up making a music video for um, Little John called uh, "Turn Down for, for a song called "Turn Down for What," um, which became our most viral video ever. It has well over a billion views now. Wow. Um, but so. So we ended up accidentally creating um, this perfect moment where we had the critical, um, you know, the the film festival stamp of approval mixed with the uh, YouTube viral um, success. So it actually, as hard as it should have been, it was actually like, um, it was actually easier than we thought it was gonna be. <laughs> it was, yeah. That made it easy to get Paul and Daniel and some money some money yes. and then we still pitched to quite a few you know um financiers before we found the right one that was like uh no i believe in this uh straight up to the you know finishing stretch but yeah um it was uh you know it took a minute but then we found the right people who were like who believed in it you know yeah well, t- from that point, tell me how you set out to plan this um, Desert Island movie, really. It was quite nautical. <laughs> Gosh, mm-hmm. yeah. It's funny. Um, we were not ready for it. We were so Ill- ill-equipped. Um, everything that we had done up until that point was either music videos, commercials, or like a couple of small TV show things that like really taught us the wrong lessons. And so we didn't, you know, ever the stupid metaphor of it's a marathon, not a sprint is, is so um, obvious, but like to us, we, we were, um, 
we had learned a lot of bad lessons. We're like, we can sprint this marathon. No exactly, big deal. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we planned it as if it was an, a long music video. That's what, that's, that's how we went into it. And um, it was hard. We, we, we got burnt out. We were rewriting um, often, like, at night after after we were shooting we had to rewrite stuff because the script wasn't really a hundred percent um because you know the script again the script was so ambitious um that we weren't good enough writers to to actually pull it off and so we kept trying to rewrite while we were shooting and so i think we did a lot of we did a lot of smart things so that we could actually pull it off but there are so many things that we learned um from that movie that um we'll probably carry with us for the rest of our careers <laughs> So let's talk a little about the importance of film festivals. I mean, Sundance was the percolator for this project, but once it was done, particularly genre festivals everywhere picked it up and, and played it. And I was at two or three where it played. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so tell me about that experience and the experience of you've been making videos before that, which are consumed one-to-one here what was your experience seeing your work in front of an audience? Mm. Yeah, I, uh, it, it was so lovely. And I think, it, I think it was one of the things that always made me unhappy a little in music videos and commercials and stuff was just like, I missed that theatrical experience. Like I grew up as a theater kid and, and got addicted to like acting. But a lot of what I was addicted to was like that that reaction you know and which uh you can also get if you make a movie and you share it in a room full of people um and uh and so yeah sharing swiss army man was so rewarding and exciting um and uh i love the um there's there's something really special i know a lot of filmmakers a lot of people like kind of roll their eyes at q a's or q a's can be such a uh, a minefield to navigate just because you never know what kinds of people are going to show up what kind of questions yeah. get asked and um i was just so surprised by how people were responding to our film um our very strange film so earnestly uh, so immediately like the the kinds of interactions that we would have after our screenings at festivals were are things i'll always remember like there was um one time this is going to sound this is going to sound like i made up the story but this is this is a true story we we did a screening it was like the third or fourth screening at sundance and we were up on a stage and uh we finished our q a and this lady just kind of runs up on stage and gets up on the stage and everyone's a little bit like um we were there with paul dano and we're like oh it's a super fan but she's like middle-aged lady but yeah we're like oh like, this is gonna be kind of weird here. yeah and and she ended up she was like she had tears in her eyes and she just told the story and she said it so um uh so directly but it, you know when you when you think about it it's really funny she said um i have a friend my one of my best friends and she will not fart in front of me and i just know that if she did she would be so much happier and then she started she broke down and she that's when she just started sobbing she couldn't finish and her paul sentence. dana just gave her a big hug <laughs> and it's wow. like so it's it's like it's it's exactly like our script on paper so funny in person so beautiful so cathartic yeah. so, and so like human and those are the kinds of things that can only happen when you get to watch a movie with an audience you like mm-hmm. even if someone emails you afterwards or sends you a, like a fan mail or something like that it's not the same as just actually getting to see um a human being uh, process your film in real time yeah mm-hmm. i remember seeing my first feature film uh, with an audience for the first time. And it was a, a sneak preview, a sold out sneak preview for a movie that 
tanked miserably at the box. <laughs> oh no! But the yeah. sneak preview was packed, and it was mm. so great. You can't. Mm. It's hard to keep tears from coming when you see your work being well received. Mm. And yeah. So this is, I think, an additional thing that happens in everything, uh, everywhere, all at once is people don't expect how deeply emotional the film becomes. Mm, yeah. So it, yeah. it feels personal to me. And you say your father was involved in, in owning a, a laundromat and that sort of thing, Daniel. Uh, tell yeah. me about how rooted that was and, and what your parents felt like when they saw your movie. <laughs> Yeah, so when we started writing this this movie, we didn't know we were going to accidentally tell an immigrant story. That was never the intention right at the beginning. We just wanted to make a fun action movie. But, you know, what ends up happening often when you're writing is you start to put yourself into the, the project and you start chasing what is most interesting. And usually what is most interesting is the stuff that you are close to. And so, yeah, they it became a story about a, a Chinese immigrant family running a laundromat and um, one of the really interesting unexpected synergies between an immigrant story and a multiverse story is that they actually have a really interesting overlap in that they're both about the question what if and they're both about um, looking back and looking at po the other possibilities um, and that's always like I, th I think anyone with with an immigrant um, parent or who actually is an immigrant can relate to that that feeling of, of wondering 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 what your life could have been if you had stayed wondering if you, what it would have been like if you moved somewhere else if you had married someone else if your kid had grown up in a different town you know there's there's so many questions that um, can be explored in the multiverse in a way that we didn't expect and so that was like all of that just came together so beautifully and uh, became a beautiful vessel for our very personal stories um, and as far as like how my parents reacted, it was, it's, it's kind of funny. My, my dad loves movies. Like he, he's the kind of person like growing up, he always had a movie on all day long. If he wasn't at work, then there would be a movie on the TV. And I think that's part of the reason why I absorbed so much cinematic language, um, when I was a kid, um, cause I was watching movies I shouldn't have been watching. That's the other thing. My dad had no <laughs> filter. So I was watching just like raunchy sex stuff violence violent horror stuff i was just watching all of it from like a lot of terminator 2 yeah when i was five <laughs> years old terminator 2 was my favorite movie I, I told the barber can you give me the the terminator haircut and she was like what are you talking about um but um so my dad like loved hong kong action he like that's because that's where his family's from is hong kong so he grew up watching all the bootlegs and so of course michelle yo was really a big part of our our, our family um story consumption or, or film consumption and uh so my dad loved the movie he saw the movie and he was just so happy and he's a very stoic man and uh he rarely like openly smiles but he was just glowing after the screening because he's you know he's watching all this stuff that like sort of pulled from our family and also tied in with this uh incredible <laughs> legend michelle yo and so my dad absolutely loved it and then my mother is the opposite of my dad. She will fall asleep in every movie. She doesn't care. <laughs> she doesn't remember any characters names or any, like I, I, I try to share my favorite movies with my mom and like, it's always fine. You know, we, we don't really get the, like I tried showing her Eternal Sunshine um, in high school. I was like, mom, you have to watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And we sat down and I think she got enough of it emotionally, but like it, most of it just went over her head. Uh -huh. And um, same thing happened with this movie. <laughs> she's like, I think, I think she's like technically impressed. Um, I think she can sit in an audience and look at all the faces of the people and hear them laughing and actually 
there's a funny story of her watching someone just sobbing next to her. And so even if my mom doesn't understand and connect with her personally, she can see what her son's work is doing to other people. And that's enough for her to be proud. And so I don't know, maybe eventually she'll get it. But like for now, like she even she's like, oh, yeah, it goes over my head. Yeah. And what about you, Daniel Schweiger? Um, what was your familial reaction to to this? I don't know. I feel like I should call them. They, they were at the premiere and they're very excited and proud of me, but I haven't, I haven't gotten specifics of just how confused they were. I get the impression <laughs> that they were pretty confused. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so uh, it's, but- it's kind of, it's been a slow, interesting process. Uh, family aside, just like watching the movie as it goes wide, resonate with different people in our lives uh, and hearing how it connects with different people. And, and, and a lot of times for very different disparate reasons, you know? Um, So I feel like I have so many more stories about just like people I haven't talked to since high school talk, you know, or my next door neighbor or uh, you know, exes, (laughs) you know, they're the best ones to uh, interesting, (laughs) but it's like, it, it really does resonate with different people for different reasons right. but but to wait to your point like especially in a theater it resonates with some people really hard right like it's a ex- explosively emotional experience for some folks which i think like we can sometimes be desensitized to movies like we'll watch a movie and be like oh yeah it's sad but i don't feel sad and it and we tried to make a movie that would shake us out of our comfort zone and, and get past all of our kind of postmodern defenses and and it's so wild to watch it work that way on other people and be like and Mm. it's a real responsibility it's kind of scary at times to be like oh wow i i'm i'm pulling down people's offenses and 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 poking at really raw nerves and and that can be like it's like when you some people get a massage and they burst out crying you know yeah Yeah. uh but it's just like all the tension getting released like i feel like I can't believe our movie's doing that to some people, and I I want to check on them. Uh, Make but, sure they're I, okay. Yeah, yeah, but I don't have time. You know, give them a hug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just want to add one thing that is really related to your question about our parents watching these movies is, and maybe you 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 see this and you read you read into this a little bit, um, but our, this film is a reaction to our, in some ways, our parents' reaction to our work. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, we make very strange things and our parents have to walk around in this world uh, knowing that, you know, their kid made turn down for what the video where a guy breaks things with his dick mm-hmm. or, or the, the, the farting corpse yeah. Dana Radcliffe movie. It's like, Oh, my son made the farting corpse movie. And like how that we're proud from a distance. Yeah, exactly. Or it's like, it's proud, but it's so complicated or maybe they're not even proud and they don't know how to process it. And so yeah. like, the, the mother-daughter relationship in um, Everything Everywhere All at Once reflects that in a really funny way where this super villain, Jobu Tupaki, is really just like a millennial, is, like is like a great metaphor for a millennial creative person who grew up in the internet, saw too much before they were ready, and uh, now 
they're embarrassing their parents uh, by <laughs> yeah. doing all this wild yeah. stuff. Um, so yeah, it's it's that's a very it's a very fun question to talk about within the context of this movie. Well, with your father being such a fan of the Hong Kong action movies, this this was going to be a Jackie Chan movie mm-hmm. in in your dreams, right? Yeah. Tell yeah. me what happened and how it managed to metamorphose into what I think is even more potently a Michelle Yeoh movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a it, it was a miracle that it didn't work out, but right. like like most people, you kind of start writing and you kind of just, you look to movies you've already seen or, and you're like, great, uh, something like that. Um, and uh, so we, we wrote a movie that was, um, the first draft was like, oh, what if we made a movie starring Michelle Yeoh and Jackie Chan? Like, we love those people. Um, yeah, but the difference was in the first draft, Jackie Chan was the protagonist and Michelle Yeoh was the the significant other, the um the, the spouse. Which is sort of like being yeah. the co-lead, but right. like he was the bumbling one. And then the idea of making her the the focus of it and, and giving her that vulnerability and I mean, like totally opened up the script. Right. But a lot of it comes down to the fact that like it's you know like we were saying before we send out a very specific signal and the people who come to us are the people who are right for the part jackie chan wasn't coming to us you know yeah uh, he's not right for the part he wanted a lot of money i don't think he ever read the script it was just like one of those things where it's like it didn't make sense and we're like this is not the person yeah yeah this is not the person we want to um like hold on to and jump into this uh the chaos of filmmaking with um and so we're like okay who's who's our next favorite person um who could fill this role and we couldn't think of anyone and then we're like wait a minute what if like michelle yo's already here what if we just swap the whole thing around her and see what happens and kind of like what shiner was saying uh it totally opened up the whole story everything became way more interesting way more personal it was so much easier for us to write about a immigrant mother struggling to keep her family together um Mm -hmm. because because we both have very strong mothers and it was, it was very easy for us to just take from our lived experience and create this, this very specific human being. Um, and it, and, and, and Michelle killed it. We're so lucky. She right. came oh, in and she just so right destroyed this role and she did such a good job. It's kind of like the role of a lifetime for her. It seems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which we did. Um, I mean, we didn't think so, but like then watching it, we were like, Oh my god we just <laughs> thought we were so lucky to have her but like yeah just yeah now now it, yeah we're so proud of the fact that we get to show the world that like you've been undervaluing this lady she's got <laughs> so much more to offer you already love her but oh my god does she have more you know yeah uh to 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 offer yeah and the whole cast is like that everyone is perfect in it and for me it was kind of personal because i did the making of the goonies and i yeah. helped do the making of indiana jones oh my uh, gosh and so, so i i'd interviewed <laughs> he back when he was a little boy oh really God. and in the early 80s i was jamie lee curtis's press uh, agent uh, uh doing publicity what are you and, doing interviewing us you should be yeah. interviewing jamie lee curtis and Kwan. <laughs> yeah well we've done jamie and uh, okay, we've, okay, done, we've done stephen king we've done the you know, cool. but um but the whole thing is you know everybody's so great and knowing jamie and not recognizing her for the first two minutes and go, oh wait a minute just, you got me and <laughs> but, so but cool. everyone is perfect in it and everybody seems fully committed to the vision that you guys laid out mm-hmm. yeah that's um that's all on them they just they they um 
they trusted this the script and they they saw our past work and they said okay i am in um because yeah we, we've worked in the past with actors who didn't fully trust us and that can be a very frustrating process for filmmakers who are try- constantly trying to push boundaries or whatever and so we were so lucky that each and every one of them not only were they um down and game for what we were um what we we're asking of them but they were pushing us even further they were asking for more from us they're like i want to do more for this role i want to i want to give this character even more thought um jamie lee curtis came in with like a full outfit that she wanted to wear with a bag bags full of props that she wanted to put on her desk uh key kwan <laughs> hired um an acting coach a voice coach a body movement coach um, and, and practice with a fanny pack every day. Like these people like gave themselves to this movie a hundred percent. And you can see when you watch this, when you watch their performances, every single one of them is shining because of how much passion they had for these characters. And so um, we are so, yeah, we're so grateful for that. And also, so we feel so proud of the fact that we created an environment in which all of them could do that. Mm-hmm. When when you're on the set and it is the two of you directing, is there one of you more involved in speaking with the actors and the other more camera oriented, or do you really share those? I think uh, we really share the actors, and and there's almost like an unspoken uh, pattern where we figure out what the what the process of each actor is and then it organically becomes like oh this, okay then you're the right person to talk to them like like if they're the kind of actor who wants like uh, a maximalist monologue about their character's desires and backstory and past like I'm that's more Dan you know but if all they want is like one actionable sentence and and the, and for the rest to be left up for interpretation like that's more my speed uh, uh-huh. and and also sometimes we connect with characters more and so like it's like oh like this is really personal this scene is really personal to dan it makes a lot of sense that he should be there working with them you know when we're in the apartment for the family um i do, i think where we divide and conquer more is uh i like problem solving a lot and and a lot of times i'm like two steps ahead trying to like head off problems and going and checking in with the stunt team and the art department and right. stuff. He's like, he's like a logistics guy. He loves scheduling. He loves efficiency. He loves coming up. I don't with- love it, but it stresses yeah. me out if yeah. it's done wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he loves it. He loves it. And then I, I love to shot list. I love to think about aesthetic. I love he loves to-, to sit at the monitor and suggest tweaks yeah, to the yeah. <laughs> lighting and the blocking, you know? Right. And I'm like, no, that's good. That's good. Let's think about the next thing. Like, let's hurry up, you know? Yeah. Oh, it seems like a perfect collaboration then. Yeah. yeah, In that regard. (laughs) You know, multiverses are so popular now and they're mostly owned by the comic book movies, but you created a multiverse from scratch. Mm. And as complex as it is, it all makes sense. Everything that happens in your movie links logically if you break it down. So tell tell me about how that plan came to be because obviously you put a lot of thought and work into making this make sense yeah Mm. thank you it um a lot of it is um we set up we set ourselves up for um 
we almost set ourselves, set ourselves up for failure with every project. We come up with a premise or an idea that we don't know how to achieve and we don't think we can achieve, but we want to try. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, and, and then the process of, of finding our way there, sometimes we miss the mark, but even though we miss the mark, we still land somewhere interesting. And so for this one, the impossible um, setup was, can we create a multiverse film where we go to so many universes that we peak, we, we hit this, peak emotional visceral experience of, of of touching infinity so that the character no longer cares about what's happening the audience doesn't know what matter knows what matters anymore um and the whole film falls apart can we do that but then pull the audience back out of that that mess that we've created and create something meaningful out of the nothingness um, and the reason why we were so drawn to that idea was because it felt like what our lives had become, you know, like mm-hmm. life is chaos right now. Everything is, is, it feels like there's, there's nothing to hold on to as far as uh, purpose and meaning. There's just too many narratives, too many things to care about. Um, and so we needed to prove to ourselves that there was a way to exist in that chaos and to, to create something beautiful out of that mess. And so that was the goal. And we basically, we just tried for years and years, just trying different outlines, different structures to find a way to create a a skeleton that could hold that really um, impossible um, challenge to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we read a lot of screenplay books. We try to break down all the different types of structure. You know, five act structure, three act structure, two act structure, nine act structure. You know, all of it just to be like, okay, can we? treat this movie like a turducken where we squeeze a family (laughs) drama inside of an action movie inside of a rom-com inside you know like can we can we do this impossible task of of sewing this thing together and making it feel um intentional you know that that was the hardest part making sure that the audience always felt like they were in good hands despite how wild it was um yeah well well, you talk about ambition with swiss army man this is a hundred times more ambitious (laughs) and it's so technically and technologically complicated Mm. so shinert was that more in your hands did you share these but it's also visionary in so many artistic senses this had to have been a colossal collaboration between both of your strengths Mm. Yeah. How did you set about planning that? Yeah, I think uh, we, um, it was a ton of tag team and also like us knowing the people we've been working with for years and what they're good at and kind of writing to that. And and so like, you know, the finished product looks like uh, we just took so many risks and challenges and made the most ambitious thing imaginable. But actually like you can kind of go back through our filmography and the filmography of our key crew and it's like we were playing to our strengths we like calculated risks we were taking calculated risks and there were a lot of things that we knew we had in our back pocket like um our we're we're both editors and in the past we've had such good luck with sometimes leaving the edit a little flexible like shooting overshooting a little knowing that we could find an emotional truth uh in the edit um if we don't over plan it. Um, and that was really, oh my God, what a great, you know, uh, safety net to have in the back as we're collecting, you know, materials. Um, and I, like, I will say that like one of the things that we've gotten really good at for slowly through, through the past 10 years is um, I will push 
for the most ambitious painting or I will I will I will pitch the most ambitious version of what a movie can be and I, I, I will talk about the details of every little corner of this image and then Shiner does this thing where um, you know how the, the human eye is really only focusing on like this much at a time and everything else your brain fills in uh, and so like the resolution right here is like 100% it looks perfect it's sharp and then what your eye is actually doing is like everything else is slowly getting more and more fuzzy as uh, it moves away from the center. And that's, and kind, of, that's kind of how you have to uh, approach a movie like this. There is only 10% of, of it that has to really be perfect and has to be like spot on, well executed. And then as we slowly move away from that circle, um, the, the next 20% can be pretty good mm -hmm. um, and pretty planned out. But don't sweat it if it's not perfect. And then from there, the, the last, you know, 70% is like, just give us whatever. doesn't matter. Fill it up. Quantity <laughs> over quality. Um, let's just make this thing work out um, just, just so we can finish it and say that it's done. So and, we would constantly like, yeah, yeah, second guess, like, is that worth planning? Yeah. And if so, we would plan it. And then a lot of other things we'd be like, uh, we'll figure that out. We can compromise whatever we can get is fine and, and constantly reminding you know the the crew and the cast of what the priorities were too right uh because if we had approached this with like a david fincher mentality we would have uh, died <laughs> it would have cost you know 10 yeah. times more maybe we'd still be finished. shooting yeah. we'd still, still be, be shooting, shooting. Yeah. like it's just not uh we didn't so we yeah it was like a mix of planning and also like trusting that we would find it in the chaos somewhere along the way, you know? And then the, the one thing I will say, because there was a, a, a push and pull between full resolution image that I'm pitching and then the spotlight of the of the eye that is is um, focusing our resources. Um, sometimes that can go too far and we end up compromising before we have to. And one of the wonderful things about working with the same crew over and over again is each of them takes ownership of our projects and wants to make it as good as possible. So even if we tell them, don't worry, that's part of the low resolution part, just like compromise, doesn't matter. Right. And if they're passionate about it, they will say, no, I disagree. Uh -huh. And I'm going to give you everything I can to make this part as beautiful as possible. And right. So, so there's so many some, examples of that in the movie where like, if you the look hot at dog set yeah. looks insane because <laughs> Kelsey Ephraim our set decorator yeah. so much about the hot dog and she set. said I'm going to make this my project and and Jason Kisvarde cared so much about the alpha RV set and all those computers and the lights and, and he's the, like I'm going to care about that he's like no that's going to be great and, and like, like Larkin really wanted us to shoot the rock scene in the most beautiful desert he could think of but it was three hours it was three hours inaccessible away, in a desert it was 115 degrees it was just like the worst idea everyone was like no 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 we should compromise and yeah larkin was like no <laughs> we have to shoot here and we're like okay. he wanted it to be in the snow though oh and we right. were like and so it was, there was a compromise of like right. we go to the desert in yeah. retrospect we should have just gone to the snow the desert was no it, miserable it's beautiful it's beautiful it's beautiful, it's beautiful. um <laughs> and then the last thing is rakakuni um jason hamer our amazing uh, special effects um makeup and puppet guy we told them like, you can make it like a, a really crappy puppet, do whatever it takes. Just it, it's, it's, it's like a stupid little joke. And, and he, he was like, no, I'm going to make that look incredible. I'm going to make an animatronic with like six different controls, you know? Uh, yeah. And same thing. The stunt team insisted on making the running scene in the Rakakuni universe practical. Right. And, and we kept being like, I don't think that's a good use of your time and money. And they just, they believed in the scene so much. They were like, please let us make this good. And, and oh my God, it's and so much better than 
uh, I dreamed it would be. <laughs> and, and I know we're, we're talking about this a lot, but one thing I've been processing lately is how, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a new father. My, my dad, my, my kid's about three years old now. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's been wild. You know, the toddler years are wild. But one of the things that I've been reflecting on is like the fact that leadership and the way that we lead can really um, change the way that we interact with um, our kids and also our crew. And so much of parenting nowadays is about positive reinforcement, letting the, um, people, letting the children lead, treating them as, as equal humans on the same footing as you as adults, and um, how different it, that was for us as kids. And um, now that I look at the way we direct versus how I thought we were supposed to direct, you know, I used to think that directing was about controlling everything and knowing exactly mm. what you want in every single moment so that you can have your vision and no one can um, ask you to compromise or whatever, you know, which obviously no one's like that. And that, that was like a misconception, but I do think there are some directors out there who are, are close to that. There are. And, and I think, a, I think a director with that mindset would never have been able to pull off this movie because they, their brains would have exploded and also everyone around them would have quit. Um, but what's great about our film is we did the opposite approach and we, we told people to do less and we try to give them, uh, to, to de-stress them and give them space to, to, you know, again, to be the best versions of themselves. And rather than it being, making it harder, it actually made the whole movie better because suddenly, uh, they were allowed to choose what they're passionate about. They were allowed to blossom and they were able to make this movie that probably shouldn't be as good as it is. Um, and made them, it made this movie um, what it is, which is like this really technically impressive feat of filmmaking, which um, is, is, is really, really fascinating to us as people who are constantly thinking about leadership and, and um, just leadership uh, philosophy, I guess. And what it is, is a really special movie that uses the tools of cinema in an entirely fresh way. The reason I do this show is because I learn from every guest. I love talking about movies, how movies are made. And I love talking with people whose work impresses me. And I can't say enough good stuff about this movie. And I thank you so much for joining us on The Slab. Thank you yeah. so much for having us. This has been a lovely conversation. Yeah, <laughs> so nice to meet you. Thanks for hyping up the movie. Yeah. You bet. Hope we can do it some more. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.